You are listening to Audio Reader, an audio information service for individuals who are blind, visually impaired, and print disabled. Hello and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Kansas City Beacon, the Chicago Defender, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Because of Them We Can website, and the Associated Press. Coming up next is a story about education. It's titled, Nationwide, Schools Call Police on Black Students More Often. Here's what we can learn from Casey's schools. It's from the Kansas City Beacon and was written by Maria Benevento and was originally published November 12, 2021. In Kansas, Missouri, and across the country, public schools call the police on black students more often than on white students, according to federal data analyzed by the Center for Public Integrity. Black students also are referred to police more often than the average rate of all students. Advocates say it's because of big systemic issues such as racism and inequality. They're also concerned about police being in schools at all. In response, Many local schools are working to address discipline issues through other methods like restorative justice. Marcus Harris, director of security for Kansas City Public Schools, has seen this work firsthand. In 2019, a group of students was caught breaking into the empty Scarrett Elementary building. But instead of pressing charges, the district worked with the Center for Conflict Resolution to help the students understand why what they did was wrong, Harris said. When I first got here in 2007, that kid would have went through the juvenile court for burglary damaging property, Harris said. And so that's how far we've come. We're trying to work with children and try to prevent them from having a criminal record. The approach can help address a growing concern that when schools involve police, it leads to negative consequences for students, especially black students. Nationwide, the Center for Public Integrity's analysis of 2017 through 2018 federal data found black students are referred to the police at a rate of 8.4 per thousand, more than twice the rate for white students. The data is the latest available. Students with disabilities face a similar disparity. A previous Beacon analysis found some Kansas City area districts refer students with disabilities to police at two or three times the average rate. In Kansas, the differences are even more dramatic. The state schools refer black students to police at a rate of 9.6 per thousand, more than twice the state average and nearly three times the rate for white students. In Missouri, overall police referral rates exceed the national average. Schools refer black students to police about 20 percent more than the state's overall rate, while referrals for white students are slightly below the Missouri overall rate. The Kansas City metro area is no exception, though disparities vary. The 2017 through 2018 data shows Kansas City Public Schools, a large district consisting of more than 90% students of color, referred 17 students to the police, all of whom were black or Hispanic. Two of the referrals ended in arrest. But several local districts have overall referral rates nearly 10 times higher than that of KCPS, and with more pronounced racial disparities. For example, the Blue Springs School District referred 188 students to police in the 2017 through 2018 school year, one of the highest reported numbers in Missouri or Kansas. KCPS had about 1,800 more students at the time. 
nearly 20% of the Blue Springs referrals were of black students, despite black students making up less than 11% of district students at the time, according to the data. Meanwhile, white students made up more than 70% of district students, but about 56% of referrals. Civil rights data collection information also shows more than 50 arrests for the district. Asked by the Kansas City Beacon about the federal data, Blue Springs found 25 fewer overall police referrals in its internal records, but spokesperson Katie Wolf did not explain the discrepancy or break down the number by race. In Park Hill, a northern Kansas City district, data showed that referral rates for black students were more than 80% above the district average and more than twice the rate for white students. The district overall had 187 police referrals, but no reported arrests. In Johnson County, Kansas, the Shawnee Mission School District reported it referred black students at a rate more than 50% higher than the district average. White students were referred at a rate slightly below the district average. The large district had 308 total referrals and more than 50 arrests. The federal data, which is self-reported by districts to the U.S. Department of Education, doesn't explain why students were referred or the consequences of the referrals. The data also might not capture all referrals as districts interpret reporting guidelines differently. The Department of Education asked districts to include reports to any law enforcement agency or official, including a school police unit, for an incident that occurs on school grounds during school-related events, in person or virtual, or while taking school transportation, regardless of whether official action is taken. The problem is caused by really big systemic issues like education inequality and racism within the educational system, leading teachers and law enforcement to respond differently to students of color, said Sharon Brett, legal director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Kansas. Ronald Carter, co-chair of the Education Task Force for Grassroots Advocacy Group More 2, that is spelled M-O-R-E followed by the numeral 2, agreed schools treat black students' misbehavior as more serious and worthy of discipline. Earlier this year, Moore, too, successfully advocated for changes to the KCPS Code of Conduct, focusing on reducing suspensions for younger students. Suspensions can lead to further disciplinary issues or dropping out of school, Carter said, and they are being given disproportionately to black students, especially black boys with disabilities. They seem to be judged much harsher for their actions as opposed to when the majority population is doing the same thing, he said. Our school district is dominated by young white women teachers. Sometimes there's a feeling that there's just a social or cultural disconnect. Representatives of the Kansas and Missouri branches of the American Civil Liberties Union said there's one major way to protect students, taking police out of schools. Our concerns with school resource officers in schools is that there's no evidence that increased police presence in schools improves school safety, said Luz Maria Enriquez, director of the ACLU of Missouri. Instead, research shows that police in schools can negatively affect school climate, that students of color, especially black students, bear the brunt of the impact, she said. In 2020, the Missouri ACLU sent a letter to several Missouri districts including Hickman Mills and Raytown in the Kansas City area, calling for the districts to remove school resource officers. The letter cited a 2014 incident in which a police officer handcuffed a 70-year-old black student 
at a KCPS school for crying in class. Brett, with a Kansas ACLU, said police aren't oriented to support students. Police are trained to enforce the law and hold people accountable for their actions, she said. The mode and methodology of policing is entirely inconsistent with what students actually need to be healthy and thrive in their schools. For students of color, who may have had negative experiences with law enforcement outside of school, having police in school makes it threatening and scary, she said. Brett also said the Kansas juvenile justice system is flawed. For example, a 2020 report from the National Juvenile Defenders Center found youth often don't have adequate representation as they go through the court system. When you have police in schools, you are essentially setting up an entry point into the system within the school walls, she said. And when you're funneling people into the system, there's a host of consequences that come with that. Leslie Foreman, a spokesperson for the Kansas City Police Department, said in an email that the department's school resource officers focus on external threats. The number one function of a school resource officer is to be there to ensure safety and protection of the schools, faculty, and staff from threats from the outside. Occasionally, that function means taking enforcement action regarding crimes that incur inside the schools involving a student. Local districts say they want to reduce disparities. In April, the Shawnee Mission School District plans to review its policing practices to address inequities, Chief Communications Officer David Smith said. For example, about 40 percent of the district's reported police referrals are tobacco-related, Smith said. Those referrals might not have consequences for students beyond a phone call to home, but there's no consistent policy in the district. Policing disparities in Park Hill helped motivate the district to focus on equity in its latest school improvement plan, said Terry Dion, Director of Access, Inclusion, and Family Engagement for the district. Her last name is spelled D-E-A-Y-O-N. The district's focus on racial justice recently intensified after students circulated a petition to bring back slavery. Park Hill officials say the district is increasingly emphasizing restorative practices, which have succeeded in other districts. The approach emphasizes repairing harm rather than doling out punishment. Jason Roberts, president of the Kansas City Federation of Teachers and School-Related Personnel and a recent high school teacher in the district, said KCPS has been moving in a positive direction. Having a greater police presence in schools creates a feeling that the school is bad, and I think we're beginning to wipe that away, he said. He sees an increased sense of safety and morale among students. While KCPS has school resource officers from the Kansas City Police Department in three district schools, most of its security staff are employed by the district and screened to ensure they can work well with children, said Harris, the security director. As part of its restorative justice approach, the district does in-house mediation with students when incidents occur. Roberts said using restorative practices is a big part of the district's success. Looking at the whole child and not just the discipline of the child has really reframed the way we do business. There are two graphs that accompany this story. The first graph is titled Comparing School Police Referral Rates by Demographic, 2017 through 2018 school year. This graph looks at the number of students per thousand referred to police based on demographic information. It compares all students, black students, white students, 
Hispanic students, and students with disabilities. The second graph is titled Police Referral Rates for Black and White Students Compared to Overall Rate. In this graph, it compares the referral rates of different school districts in the Kansas City metropolitan area. Those districts are the Park Hill School District, the Blue Springs School District, the Shawnee Mission School District, Kansas City Public Schools, and the Kansas City, Kansas Public Schools. That is the story titled, Nationwide, Schools Call Police on Black Students More Often. Here's what we can learn from KC schools. It was written by Maria Benevento. It was published November 12, 2021, and it comes from the Kansas City Beacon. The next story for today is titled, NASA Astronaut to be First Black Woman to Join Space Station Crew. It's subtitled, Jessica Watkins, who joined NASA's Astronaut Corps in 2017, is scheduled to fly to the orbital outpost in a SpaceX capsule in April. It's from the New York Times and was written by Joy Roulette. The author's last name is spelled R-O-U-L-E-T-T-E. Two decades after the International Space Station became humanity's long-lasting home in orbit, Jessica Watkins, a NASA astronaut, is poised to become the first black woman to join its crew for a long-term mission. NASA announced on Tuesday that Dr. Watkins, a geologist raised in Lafayette, Colorado, would serve as a mission specialist on SpaceX's next astronaut flight, known as Crew-4, to the space station. She will join two other NASA astronauts and an Italian astronaut for a six-month mission aboard the orbital lab that is scheduled to start in April. In an interview, Dr. Watkins says she hoped going to the space station would set an example for children of color, and particularly young girls of color, to be able to see an example of ways that they can participate and succeed. She added, For me, that's been really important, and so if I can contribute to that in some way, that's definitely worth it. Only seven of the 249 people who have boarded the space station since its creation in 2000 were black. Victor Glover, a Navy commander and test pilot who joined NASA's Astronaut Corps in 2013, became the first black crew member in a regular long-duration mission at the station. His mission started last year. The six black astronauts who had visited the station before Mr. Glover were part of space shuttle crews that stayed for roughly 12 days. In 1983, Guillaume S. Bluford, his first name is spelled capital G-U-I-O-N, became the first black American to go to space, and Mae Jemison was the first black woman to do so in 1992. In 1961, Ed Dwight, an Air Force pilot, was NASA's first black astronaut trainee, but he was not selected. In September, Sion Proctor, first name spelled capital S-I-A-N, a member of SpaceX's Inspiration4 amateur astronaut mission that went to orbit but not to the space station, became the first black woman to serve as a spacecraft pilot. Jeanette Epps, a NASA astronaut, was initially set to be the first black woman to live and work on the space station in 2018, but she was replaced by another astronaut for reasons NASA has not explained. She remains scheduled for a six-month mission as part of the first operational astronaut crew to fly Boeing's Starliner capsule to the station, but development of that capsule is years behind schedule. This summer, a faulty set of valves discovered on Starliner's propulsion system before an uncrewed test launch 
further delayed Dr. Epps' mission to late 2022 at the earliest. Dr. Watkins completed her undergraduate studies at Stanford University and earned a doctorate from the University of California, Los Angeles, with a study of landslides on Mars and Earth. She has worked with NASA's Space Labs on projects including the Mars Curiosity rover mission and joined the Astronaut Corps in 2017. Becoming an astronaut, she said, was something I dreamed about for a very long time ever since I was pretty little, but definitely not something I thought would ever happen. Last year, she was among 18 astronauts NASA named to represent the agency's Artemis program, a multi-billion dollar effort to return humans, including the first woman and the first person of color, to the surface of the moon in 2025. The astronauts NASA sent to the moon during the Apollo program were all white men. In recent years, the agency has sought to make its astronaut programs more representative of the American population. Exploring space beyond low Earth orbit is a huge effort, and we have to have the participation from all parts of our society, Ken Bowersox, a SEER official in NASA's space operations wing and a former astronaut said during an event last week referring to the agency's goals beyond low Earth orbit. Dr. Watkins had been training for a trip to space for months before her crew assignment. She has completed spacewalk simulations at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston and learned the ins and outs of the space station, a football field-sized science laboratory 260 miles above Earth. It is certainly not lost to me that we've arrived in this moment in history, she said, of being the first black woman to carry out a long-duration mission. This moment is not as worthwhile if we are not able to focus on the job and perform well. There are two photos that come along with this story. The first shows six people on a stage. One of them is Dr. Watkins, and she is in a blue jumpsuit. An image of the moon is behind her, and the NASA logo is in front of that image. To her left are five people. The subtitle to the picture says, Jessica Watkins left during a ceremony at the Johnson Space Center in Houston in 2020 to announce the astronauts assigned to NASA's Artemis program. The next photo is an image of Dr. Watkins sitting in a brown leather lounge chair, and she's dressed in a spacesuit. It is from her Instagram page. The caption to this photo reads, kicking back in the Orion Crew Survival System suit, better known as the pumpkin suit, but shown here without the pumpkin, and digging in on a simulated lunar surface EVA in the rock yard. So cool to see experts working together to get humans to the moon. That was the story titled, NASA Astronaut to be First Black Woman to Join Space Station Crew. It was originally published in the New York Times, and was written by Joey Roulette. The next story for today's program comes from the becauseofthemwecan.com website. It's titled, Civil Rights Pioneer Claudette Colvin is Pushing to Get Her Record Expunged. It was published November 4th, 2021, and was written by the Because of Them We Can staff. Civil rights pioneer Claudette Colvin is pushing to get her record expunged, the New York Times reports. Colvin was only 15 years old on March 2, 1955, the day she decided not to give up her seat to accommodate a white woman. At the time, Colvin recalled that they were fresh out of Negro History Month. 
and had been discussing racial injustices all week, something she was thinking about when the incident occurred. History had me glued to the seat, Colvin told reporters decades later. Subsequently, she was arrested and convicted of violating the city's segregation law, disorderly conduct, and assaulting an officer. Colvin and her lawyers appealed, ultimately having her sentenced to probation only for the assault charge, which her lawyer, Philip Ensler, said could have been something as small as accidentally stepping on an officer's toes. Nine months later, Rosa Parks was arrested for doing the same thing in the same city, on the same bus system, and would later become a prominent face in the civil rights movement. While Colvin's actions were largely recognized by leaders in the movement, including Dr. Martin Luther King, who met with city and bus officials after Colvin's arrest, Parks at the time was a better fit for the movement's campaign. Colvin left the city and moved to the Bronx, but later returned to Montgomery at the height of the bus boycott and even served as the star witness in the landmark case that effectively ended bus segregation. My mother told me to be quiet about what I did. She told me, let Rosa be the one. White people aren't going to bother Rosa. Her skin is lighter than yours, and they like her, Colvin told the Times in 2009. Colvin said eventually she came to terms with her place in the movement and history, saying, I know in my heart that Rosa Parks was the right person. Still, Colvin is fighting for her name to be cleared, saying she still has a juvenile record from the incident that happened nearly 70 years ago. Cassanta Saunders, that's spelled K-A-S-A-N-T-A, who currently lives in the King Hill neighborhood of Montgomery, where Colvin grew up, has been spearheading efforts to honor Colvin and her legacy, petitioning the city to recognize the crucial role she played in the struggle for civil rights. Immediately, we started reaching out to people to try to figure out how we could get her record clean, said Sanders. But Colvin was still suspicious and didn't have much faith that the judicial systems would do the right thing and correct their wrong. Yet, she proceeded on, heading to an office in Birmingham, Alabama, where she lives in an assisted living facility to file the petition to have her juvenile criminal record expunged. I'm not doing it for me. I'm 82 years old. But I wanted my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren to understand that their grandmother stood up for something very important and that it changed our lives a lot. Changed attitudes, Colvin said. The judge presiding over her case, Calvin L. Williams, said he's aware of the historical significance and doesn't take it lightly. It's somewhat of a full circle historically that an African-American judge such as myself can sit in judgment of a request such as this to give Miss Claudette Colvin really the justice that she so long deserves, said Judge Williams. He's set to issue the ruling in the coming weeks, but he's already decided what he plans to do. We will order those records destroyed, Williams said. For Colvin, justice is a long time coming, and she hopes that she can be an example for other freedom fighters. I want to show the generation growing up now that progress is possible, and things do get better. The struggle continues. I just don't want us to regress as a race, as a minority group, and give up hope. Keep the faith. Keep on going and keep on fighting, she said. That was the story titled, Civil Rights Pioneer Claudette Colvin is Pushing to Get Her Record Expunged. It was originally published November 4th, 2021, in the becauseofthemwecan.com website, and was written by the Because of Them We Can staff.
The next article for today's program is titled Prize-Winning 1619 Project Now Coming Out in Book Form. It was published November 13th by the Associated Press. It was written by Hillel Italier, spelled capital H-I-L-L-E-L, capital I-T-A-L-I-E. Thais Perkins, spelled capital T-H-A-I-S, is the owner of Reverie Books in Austin, Texas, and the parent of a middle school student and high school student. Among the books she is eager to have in her store and in the schools is an expanded edition of the 1619 Project that comes out this week. My store is a social justice-oriented bookstore, and this book fits very well within that mission, she says. I am promoting community sponsorships of the book where people can purchase a copy and have it donated to one of the schools. That is, assuming, of course, the school will be allowed to accept it. The 1619 Project, which began two years ago as a special issue of the New York Times Magazine, has been at the heart of an intensifying debate over racism and the country's origins and how they should be presented in the classroom. The project has been welcomed as a vital new voice that places slavery at the center of American history and black people at the heart of a centuries-long quest for the U.S. to meet the promise, intended or otherwise, that all men are created equal. Project creator Nicole Hannah-Jones received a Pulitzer Prize for commentary. At the same time, opposition has come from such historians as the Pulitzer Prize winner Gordon Wood, who denounced the project's initial assertion that protecting slavery was a primary reason for the American Revolution, the language has since been amended, and from Republican officials around the country. Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas has proposed a bill that would ban federal funding for teaching the project, and the Trump administration issued a 1776 commission report. It called a rebuttal against reckless re-education attempts that seek to reframe American history around the idea that the United States is not an exceptional country, but an evil one. In 2021, Republican objections to the 1619 Project and to critical race theory have led to widespread legislative action, according to Jonathan Friedman, director of free education at Penn America, Dozens of bills around the country have been proposed or enacted that call for various restrictions on books seen as immoral or unpatriotic. Two bills passed in Texas specifically mention the 1619 Project. When you look at the current movement about critical race theory, you can see some of its origins in the fight over the 1619 Project, Friedman says. The Texas laws, Friedman says, are opaque about how or whether a given school, such as the ones attended by Perkins kids, could receive a copy of the 1619 book. He cites a passage which reads, a teacher, administrator, or other employee of a state agency, school district, or open enrollment charter school may not require an understanding of the 1619 project. The provision effectively bars a teacher from teaching or assigning any materials from the 1619 Project, he says, but not the school library from stocking it, especially if the book has been donated. A spokesperson for the Austin Independent School District says in a statement that the academics team is currently working on this internally and we are not yet able to speak to the issue. The 1619 book appears destined for political controversy but it's also a literary event. 
Contributors range from such prize-winning authors on poverty and racial justice as Matthew Desmond, Brian Stevenson, and Michelle Alexander, to Oscar-winning filmmaker Barry Jenkins, to waiting to exhale novelist Terry McMillan and author Jasmine Ward. Her name is spelled capital J-E-S-M-Y-N. A two-time winner of the National Book Award for Fiction. Along with essays on religion, music, politics, medicine, and other subjects, the book includes poetry from the Pulitzer winners Tracy K. Smith, Yusef Kamunayaka, spelled K-O-M-U-N-Y-A-K-A-A, Rita Dove, and Natasha Thrithui, spelled T-R-E-T-H-E-W-E-Y. It's just such an amazing part of this book, Hannah Jones says, of the poems and prose fiction. It gives you these beautiful breaks between these essays. The 1619 Project book already has reached the top 100 of the bestseller list of Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Online bookseller Bookshop.org has set up a partnership with the publisher One World, an imprint of Penguin Random House, for independent stores such as Reverie Books to donate copies to local libraries, schools, book banks, and other local organizations. Hannah Jones' promotional tour is a mix of bookstores and performing venues and at least one very personal journey. She will make appearances at the Brooklyn Academy of Music and the Free Library of Philadelphia. She will visit Waterloo West High School in her home state of Iowa, partner with Loyalty Bookstore and Mahogany Books for an event at the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in Washington and attend the Chicago Humanities Festival. She will also speak at the annual convention of the National Council of Teachers of English. Lindsay Birkins, who leads the council's Build Your Stack initiative, which helps teachers build their classroom libraries, says it was important to reflect a diversity of experiences in the classroom text. Birkins, a third grade teacher in Ohio, says that it's easier to engage students with topics like history when they can see themselves in the work they're reading. The more books that we have in our menu, the more that students get to start learning about historical events in a way that is humanizing for them, Birkin says. Hannah Jones says that reaching classrooms was not on her mind when she conceived the 1619 Project, but that schools have been important outlets. Through a partnership with the Pulitzer Center, which has teamed with the Times before, the project has been embraced by dozens of schools and educational centers around the country, from high school history faculty in Baltimore to grade school teachers in Ann Arbor, Michigan, to the advocacy group Texas Trailblazers for Equity in Education. Hannah has a second book out this week, The Penguin Random House Imprint, Coquila, that's spelled K-O-K-I-L-A, is publishing the picture story Born on the Water, a collaboration among Hannah Jones, co-writer Renee Watson, and illustrator Nicholas Smith that Hannah Jones says she was inspired to work on after readers of the Times Magazine asked for something addressed to younger readers. It is a mini history with verse and images that traces centuries of black lives from their thriving communities in Africa to their forced passage overseas and enslavement to their hard-earned freedom. Those once broken-hearted, beaten, and bruised became healers, pastors, and activists. Hannah Jones and Watson write, Because the people fought, America began to live up to its promise of democracy. Jess Lifshitz, that's spelled capital L-I-F-S-H-I-T-Z, 
who teaches fifth grade literacy in the Chicago suburbs, says that although she is familiar with the 1619 Project, she didn't plan to directly incorporate the work into her classroom because of her student's age. That changed when she received a preview copy of Born on the Water. It honors what children are able to wrestle with and grapple with. And I think so many books written for children underestimate what they're capable of, Lifshitz says. With all the tension that is swirling around adults, sometimes it's hard to remember what a beautiful picture book that tells an accurate story about history can do for the kids sitting in the room. There are two images that come with this story. One is the book cover for the book that show an African woman and man standing in chest-high ocean water. In the background is a slave ship with white sails. Next to that is an image of the words, the 1619 Project, in white with a blue background. The caption reads, This combination photo shows cover art for the 1619 Project, Born on the Water, based on a student's family tree assignment, with words by Hannah Jones and Renee Watson, and illustrations by Nicholas Smith, left, and the 1619 Project, a new origin story. That was the article titled, Prize-Winning 1619 Project, now coming out in book form. It was published November 13th by the Associated Press, and it was written by Hillel Italier, spelled H-I-L-L-E-L, capital I-T-A-L-I-E. The next story for today is a film review. It comes from the Chicago Defender, the November 10th edition. It's titled, Everything's Not Black and White in the Film Passing, written by Danielle Sanders. Premiering on Netflix November 10th, Passing tells the story of two black women who can pass as white, but choose to live on opposite sides of the color line during the Harlem Renaissance in 1920s New York. The film stars Tessa Thompson and Academy Award-nominated actress Ruth Nega, adapted from the 1929 novel by Nella Larson and directed by Rebecca Hall, who also adapted the screenplay, passing as a poignant examination of the realities faced by some black Americans who lied about their identity to protect their constructed realities. Passing as white for some was a means of escaping slavery. Escaped slaves who could pass as white found safety in perceived whiteness as they were less likely to be caught and returned to plantations. Many mixed-race blacks often passed to escape slavery and their white masters, many of whom were fathered by them. After the Emancipation Proclamation and through the period of Jim Crow, those who were able to pass as white used it as an opportunity to get a job, travel, or attend school. It was a method to avoid segregation laws. Passing in some circles was seen as a means to better themselves in a world that rejected and vilified blackness for others. It meant rejecting one's culture, family, and ethnicity. In passing, Ruth Nega plays Claire, a white passing woman who has completely assimilated into white culture. She's married a white man, John, played by Alexander Skarsgård, and has even given birth to a child. Despite her husband's apparent disdain for black people, Claire seems content in her white world until a chance meeting with an old friend triggers a longing to return to her community and cease living a lie. 
Claire lives in constant fear of being exposed and desires the freedom to live her life authentically. She becomes obsessed with the life of her friend Irene, played by Tessa Thompson. Irene is a light-skinned black woman who chooses to pass when it serves her, such as shopping in white areas for a toy for her son or dining in establishments for white people. She's married to a black man with two black children. To Claire, Irene is living the ideal life, but as the film progresses, we learn that all that glitters is not gold in Irene's home. As Claire becomes more and more obsessed with being included in Irene's black world, she becomes less careful in disguising her black identity, at times seeming willing to risk it all for the freedom to exist as a black woman in society. Director Rebecca Hall has a close connection to the film and novel as her maternal grandfather, who was black, lived his life as a white man for most of his life. There had always been vague talk about my grandfather being black and passing for white, although it was never framed that way. He was light-skinned. He married a Dutch woman, lived in a white neighborhood, and raised his children as white. I never knew him. He sadly passed when my mother was a teenager, and a lot of the answers to these questions went with him. At some point, I got a bit more inquisitive about trying to pin down the facts. It was made clear that, yes, my grandfather was black and was white passing most of his life. I mentioned all of this to a friend of mine, and he suggested I read Passing. The feeling I had at the time was just this shock of recognition. I knew these characters and knew them in a way I found confusing. I finished the novella and started writing the script almost immediately in some sort of attempt to get to grips with that feeling. Over the years, I think what I've come to is that even though I am a person who presents as white and as such doesn't experience the day-to-day -day pressures of being black in this country, I am also a person who grew up in a family that has been shaped indelibly and painfully by the legacy of racism, in particular, the legacy of racial passing. In the end, I decided I needed to make this film both because of where I came from as a filmmaker and also because making this film is my way of reaching back into my own family with compassion, generosity, and love towards those who form their identities in a world that feared and despised them. Passing brilliantly captures 1920s Harlem in black and white, which seems intentional considering the film's subject matter. However, we learn racial identity isn't always black and white, and the grass is not always greener on the other side. The more Claire intertwines herself in Irene's life, the more jealousy and envy rear their heads on both sides, with Claire envious of Irene's black life, black husband, black children, and Irene jealous of Claire's ability to capture the attention of many, including those in her social circle and her husband. Ruth Negga was fascinated by the idea of passing, saying, I was familiar with the concept of passing in American life, but it was seen from the tragic mulatto point of view. It was interesting to see it from the point of view of a black writer. I heard these stories about these people who chose to disappear themselves, often from necessity and sometimes from want, to think that they thought they could have a better life if they disconnected from their family, culture, and color. I found it fascinating because it deeply touched me that it would have to be a choice for some people. Passing challenges notions of racial identity, a theme relevant today. The irony of how times have changed is not lost in me as I watch Passing. Blackness is now cool and often appropriated by white people instead of blacks attempting to pass as white to obtain upward mobility 
and a better social standing in society. With people like Rachel Dolezal, who was outed after discovering she was a white woman passing as black, to influencers and celebrities who are often accused of appropriating blackness by mimicking black hairstyles, speech, and even tanning and bronzing their skin to appear darker. The nuances surrounding black identity and culture are a hotly debated topic. As the quote says, they want our rhythm, but not our blues. Today's black passing or culturally appropriating individuals wants the style and swag black cultures bring, but want to avoid the realities that black people face dealing with racism and systematic oppression. Tessa Thompson says releasing this film at this moment in time is relevant. It's wild that we should have made this movie at a time when, as a society, we are inside these kinds of works, really trying to contend with some of these questions that they ask. We're at a time when folks are rightfully thinking we need to talk about the value and dignity of black life in the streets and communicate it into policy, but also create opportunity in terms of storytelling. Netflix's passing is a beautiful and tragic depiction of the cost of living a life filled with deception. Tessa Thompson and Ruth Negga masterfully portray two women who are two sides of the same coin, each battling and fighting for the freedom to live their lives authentically and the costs associated with doing that. Actors Andre Holland, who plays Brian, Bill Camp, who plays Hugh, Antoinette Crow Legacy, who plays Felice, Gabenga Akinagabi, who plays Dave, and Alexander Skarsgård, who plays John, round out an impressive cast. Passing is a thought-provoking, powerful, and artful film that will inspire conversations and debates about racial identity in America. A definite must-see. Passing is currently in theaters and will be available for streaming on Netflix November 10th. There are four photos that come with this film review. The first shows the two main characters, Claire and Irene, wearing hats and standing outside an apartment building in New York City, looking off to the left. The second photo shows the character Claire sitting on the lap of her husband, John. She's wearing a dress. He is bearded and wearing a suit, and they are posed looking lovingly at each other. The third photo shows the character Irene standing in a room with her husband, Brian. She has her hands clasped and is looking down and has an expression of deep thought on her face. Brian is about five feet away from her in a suit, and he has his hand in his pocket. He's staring at his wife curiously. The last photo that comes with the story shows the characters Irene and Claire smiling and looking off to the right, as they sit at a table in either a nightclub or a restaurant. That was a film review of the movie Passing, titled Everything's Not Black and White in Film Passing, written by Danielle Sanders for the Chicago Defender in their November 10th, 2021 edition. The next piece for today's African American Hour is a column from the November 10th, 2021 edition of the Los Angeles Times. The title is Kamala Harris, the Incredible Disappearing Vice President. It's written by columnist Mark C. Barabak. That's spelled B-A-R-A-B-A-K. Whatever happened to Kamala Harris? She shattered all kinds of ceiling glass when Joe Biden made California's junior senator his running mate and Harris was elected vice president. 
Since then, she's largely receded from Washington's daily doings and the cliffhanging drama that surrounded the fight over the president's agenda. Part of the answer is simple. What happened to Harris is she became vice president. Even as she shoulders an array of policy portfolios, even as she visits Paris this week seeking to address the administration's ruptured relations with France, it remains a fact that the number two job in the White House is inherently a diminishing one. It's neither racist nor misogynistic to point that out when the job holder happens to be Harris. Virtually every vice president in modern history, save Dick Cheney, who played an unusually prominent role guiding defense and foreign policy under President George W. Bush, has looked smaller than when he or she accepted the position. That's because a main job requirement is stepping away from the spotlight, except when cheerleading for the president and his agenda. This requires varying degrees of sycophancy. After four years of emasculation, Mike Pence didn't seem to mind that his boss, President Trump, wasn't at all upset that some of Trump's supporters wished to kill Pence for refusing to illegally overturn Biden's election. Pence, whatever else he accomplishes in life, has managed to set new standards for tolerance and self-abasement. There were different heightened expectations for Harris, chiefly because of her groundbreaking election. No one like her, the first woman, first black person, first Asian American elected vice president, has ever moved through Washington's uppermost reaches. Her every action would be unprecedented and surely, it seemed, merit special notice and great amounts of news coverage. But that one cardinal rule, to never purposely overshadow the president or seem eager to take his place, doesn't yield to history or celebrity. That's especially true when the chief executive is a brittle 78-year-old. So ever since taking office, Harris has made humility a top item on her public-facing agenda, alongside the assignments, voting rights, space exploration, women in the workforce, immigration from Central America, and more the president has given her. It's no surprise. Caution has long been a hallmark of Harris's political career and the subservient nature of the vice presidency, as well as the scrutiny of Biden loyalists sensitive to the merest hint of personal ambition reinforced that inclination. There is a long history of tensions between presidential and vice presidential staff members, and the Biden White House is no exception. Another reason for Harris's fade to the background is her thin Washington resume. Typically, vice presidents are chosen because they are perceived as doing something the president can't do or can't do very well, said Chris Devine, who teaches political science at the University of Dayton and has co-written two books on the vice presidency. Biden, Cheney, and Al Gore had the Capitol Hill experience that the presidents they served under, Barack Obama, Bush, Bill Clinton, lacked. Pence, a congressman for more than a decade before becoming Indiana's governor, served as Trump's emissary to the conservative and evangelical wings of the GOP. There's not a whole lot Harris can do that Biden cannot or hasn't done already, including acting in the job she now holds. The president served 36 years in the Senate and Harris just four, much of which she spent preparing for the 2020 run for president. So it's not as though Biden needs Harris's help forging relationships with lawmakers or finding his way up Pennsylvania Avenue to the House and Senate. Although the vice president was among those making phone calls last week from the war room established to push Biden's big infrastructure bill past the finish line, she hasn't played the role of legislative closer that Biden did under Obama. Harris, 
57 is on her third foreign trip as vice president. Biden began traveling overseas as a senator when Harris was still in grade school. So it's not as though Biden has to look to his vice president to explain the difference between the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund or to teach him the protocol for meeting the Pope whom Biden has visited with three times. Harris was chosen to run alongside Biden in great part because she brought balance, relative youth, her race, and gender to the Democratic presidential ticket. In the White House, the president has strived to make his vice president appear to be a full partner in the Biden-Harris administration. In practice, though, she's more like an apprentice. There are several vice presidents who step out of the shadow of the Oval Office and the self-effacing number two job to win the presidency, including after serving under larger-than-life figures like Ronald Reagan or history-making ones like Obama. Barring unforeseen events, Harris has at least three more years and possibly as many as seven to learn and grow in the White House. She'll mostly do it out of sight and for many out of mind. That was the column titled Kamala Harris, the Incredible Disappearing Vice President, written by Mark Z. Barabak, which first appeared in the November 10th, 2021 edition of the Los Angeles Times. The next article is from the New York Times. It's from November 11th, 2021. It's an obituary. The title of the obituary is Quandra Pretty Man, Champion of Black Women's Literature, Dies at 88. It is written by Clay Risen. Quandra Pretty Man, who developed some of the country's first courses in black women's literature as the first black full-time faculty member at Barnard College, died on October 21st in her home in Manhattan. She was 88. Her sister, Walton Prettyman, said the cause was cancer. Professor Prettyman arrived at Barnard with his all-female student body in the early 1970s, and her willingness to present literary classics in ways that made them accessible to students, particularly those of color, quickly made her one of the most popular professors on campus. She presented literature like it belonged to all of us. The writer Edwidge Danticott, who took Mrs. Prettyman's freshman English course and remained close friends with her, said in a phone interview. At first, Professor Prettyman taught introductory survey classes, but in 1972, she introduced a new course on black women writers, including authors like Harriet Jacobs, author of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, published in 1861. It wouldn't be the first course at Barnard to focus on black literature. A few had been offered in the 1960s. This one, though, would be different. It brought together perspectives from the emerging field of feminist literary studies with the study of black writers, what was then an underappreciated area of American literature. The course was an immediate hit, and over the decades, Professor Prettyman added others that explored different aspects of the black literary experience, including some of the first courses in the country on slave narratives and the Harlem Renaissance. She also edited Out of Our Lives, a selection of contemporary black fiction, 1975, which presented readers with works by then-emerging writers like Lewis Merriweather, Ernest J. Gaines, and Alice Walker. She was pushing the canon open, not just at Barnard, but far beyond, said Sheon Bylock, the president of Barnard, said in a phone interview. Professor Prettyman struggled with accusations, often subtle, but not always so, that she was a token hire. 
Two years before she joined Barnard, hundreds of its students had crossed Broadway to join Columbia University students in protest over, among other things, their school's failure to attract black students and faculty, despite a promise in 1964 to do so. Whenever black speakers came to the campus, Professor Prettyman was asked to introduce them, and she worried that her presence at some Barnard gatherings created an illusion of diversity at the college, which was predominantly white. There was a time when I stopped going to parental events, so as not to give a false sign of black presence, she said in a 2014 interview with Monica Miller, another Barnard professor in the college's alumni magazine. But she also embraced her role as a voice and mentor for Barnard's black students, especially those who did not come from elite backgrounds. Among them was Miss Danticott, who was born in Haiti and graduated from public school in Brooklyn. She remembered Miss Prettyman as an inspiration, even though she got a C on one of her first papers for an essay on Jane Eyre. When we finished the class and we had dinner at her apartment, I felt like I had been launched on my career, said Miss Danticott, now a much-honored author of novel and short stories. Quandra Erlen Prettyman was born in Baltimore on January 19, 1933. Her parents, Lloyd Eugene Quandrit Prettyman and Buena Vista Gray Prettyman, were teachers in the city's public schools. Her father also played bass and French horn in a big band jazz ensemble and counted the singer and band leader Cab Calloway among his circle of friends. Quandra took to literature at an early age. In high school, she fell in love with the works of Gwendolyn Brooks and decided to be a poet. In the 1940s, she and a biracial group of friends took a road trip to Mexico, a journey, she later said, that was more dangerous than she had realized at the time, traveling through parts of the country where a black person seen in the company of white people might get arrested or worse. She attended Antioch College in Ohio, graduating in 1954 with a degree in history. A year later, she began graduate studies in English at the University of Michigan, and in 1957, she moved to New York to work in publishing and teach literature at the New School. She married John Statler in 1963. They later divorced. She married William L. Smith in 1984. Along with her sisters, she is survived by her daughter, Joanna Statler, and her stepson, Sean Smith. Professor Prettyman joined Barnard in 1970 after a friend had arranged a meeting with her with Barry Ulanov, the chairman of its English department. She was still writing her dissertation for a doctorate at the time, but Professor Ulanov asked if she could start teaching that fall as an instructor. She never finished her Ph.D. Before and after joining the Barnard faculty, Professor Prettyman traveled widely and frequently to Amsterdam and Paris, where she befriended James Baldwin. She never gave up her childhood love of poetry, both reading and writing it, and published several poems over her career. As her career lengthened, she became especially interested in cookbooks written by black women. Her kitchen shelves were lined with them, Miss Danticott said. Professor Prettyman said that many such volumes, though presented as cookbooks, were more like memoirs, offering powerful insights into the lives of black families in the South. One in search of the Afro-American women's story is well advised to consider cookbooks along with the more conventional autobiographies, she wrote in a 1992 essay in the journal Southern Quarterly. She revealed in Edna Lewis's The Taste of Country Cooking, 1976, 
with its rich details about Miss Lewis's family going back generations to a time before the onset of sharecropping and Jim Crow. The frightful loss of Black-owned farms gives this work a poignant, somewhat tragic sense, she wrote. Taste may be apolitical, but it is not ahistorical. This obituary is accompanied with a photograph of Professor Pretty Man standing in a classroom, smiling with a book and pen in her right hand, and her left hand is in the pocket of her skirt. There is a seated student beside her who is reading a book. The caption says, Professor Quandra Pretty Man leading a class at Barnard in the late 1980s. She taught a popular freshman survey course for four decades and broke new ground with courses in black literature. That was an obituary from the New York Times, November 11th edition. It's titled, Quandra Pretty Man, Champion of Black Women's Literature Dies at 88. It was written by Clay Risen. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Byron Buckner. Thanks for joining me.